When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there would have been a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me. Welcome to Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm your host, Wes, along with my brother, Woody, and researcher, author, and friend, William Jeffy. Let's start the show. Please have someone contact us. This is no hoax. My brother is afraid for his family. This creature is getting bolder every time it returns. This thing is huge, walks upright, smells like musky urine, burned hair type odor. He repeatedly comes back in the early morning hours after midnight and harasses us right before dawn. It has on more than one occasion tried to enter the home. We don't know where to turn. Everyone thinks we're crazy when we mention it. Please, we don't know what to do but I know that something needs to be done. The message went on to explain that the family was having problems over the past two years with one or more nuisance animals that were prowling around outside the home at night. The animals were stealing deer meat from an outside shed. The situation had escalated when the animals tried to enter the home. At one point, the father went outside to confront the animal. He got a good look at one and took a shot he claimed it was running back into the woods. Whatever it was, it wasn't alone. The family could hear chattering and screaming from the hills when the prowler was near the home. The situation escalated as the brothers started shooting from the porch at the creatures chattering on the hill.
I talked to Mike the other day on the phone for almost two hours. You know, this account of, they call it the Siege of Honabi, is probably one of the coolest encounters I think I've ever read online. Uh, it's like I can't believe someone hasn't written a book or... Well, you know, it reminds movie. me of the modern day, a couple of those older stories that I had recorded, like, you know, The Six is Wild Man, there were elements of that, you know, the violence, and, and a couple of those other stories, you know, from around the Oregon-California border region. You know, it, it just, there's so much of it that rings true. And then, you know, Mike emailed me last night and was really apologetic that we didn't get a chance to talk because he had apparently, there were friends that dropped in unexpectedly and they weren't leaving soon. So, and then he told me he was going to be up the cabin with his kids today. So he was going to be out of, out of contact. I, and Mike was wanting me to, to uh, kind of tell a story because what you read on the BFRO's website isn't quite what happened. Uh, no, so what, what actually to accommodate their own point of view. Yeah, they do. Right. They do. And when you read the account online, well, I'll go into the story and then and then we can kind of discuss the report. But okay. So what happened is Tim and Mike are brothers, and Tim had bought this property, and it was a 30-acre piece of property there in, in Honabi. And his dad had also bought a 10-acre piece of property. Right. They were on the same property line. This is in the middle of nowhere. And what Mike was telling me was, you know, it was about a quarter of a mile to his to his dad's house from his house. So when his his brother first bought the property, Mike had actually seen, he had two daytime sightings of the creature. You know, the first time he saw it, he really wasn't sure what to think of it. He didn't, you know, he wasn't thinking, oh, this is Bigfoot, you know. And to this day, he still calls them monsters. When you hear the story, you'll kind of understand why. So they buy this property. By the time he sees a second, has a second sighting, he realizes that, this is Sasquatch on their property, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to tell his brother. And him and I kind of laughed about it because I could kind of understand, you know. Yeah, he said, yeah right. <laughs> if I told my brother, I'd never hear the end of it. You know, it'd be. <laughs> if I told my brother, that, it'd be yeah? not. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be nonstop, <laughs> nonstop harassment from his brother. So he didn't really say a whole lot. So one night, him and Tim, which is the other brother who hadn't seen the creatures yet. Him and his wife are sitting there having dinner, and they're sitting there eating dinner, and this thing screams at them. Oh, my God. Tim said he felt the scream. He physically felt the scream through his body. It reverberated through his body. He called Mike and was like, hey, Mike, tell him what happened. And he said, you know, we have this china set that's on inside this cabinet. It actually shook the china set. It, it rattled the china set. So he starts talking to his brother, and, and Mike says, well, it's it's Bigfoot. At that point... You know, he was like, no, are you you kidding me? So they started having, they started seeing these creatures. The more and more they got around on this property, the more and more they started seeing these creatures. And and let me back up. When you read the BFRO report, you get the impression that these are just a bunch of hillbillies out there blasting away. Mike's probably one of the most intelligent guys I've ever talked to, I've ever spoke with. I mean, he's he's no dummy and he's no hillbilly out there just blasting away. I mean, these, these are pretty bright guys out there. Yeah, and his emails he comes across that way. Yeah, he's he's very intelligent. And so he was telling me that they had bought they had purchased this property because Mike and Tim, they grew up uh, out in the woods. They used to run around in the woods as kids, and that's kind of what they wanted for their kids. And so that was the whole reason why they bought you know, purchased this this property. So what started happening is Mike would say, Mike was telling me he'd be laying in bed at like 2 in the morning. And something would come up to the front door, bap, 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 bap. And, and keep in mind, they're in the middle of nowhere. 
Right. And so Mike, Mike would get out of bed, go up to the front door, and there was nothing there. And Mike was telling me, you know, Wes, I, I got to get up at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, go to work. I didn't know if I had dreamt that or, you know, when it first started happening. And then it started, the aggression started it started escalating. So Mike was telling me he'd be sitting there at bed at night, and he said they always came after midnight, and they always left right before the sun came up. Right before dawn, at, yeah. Right before dawn. And he said that it was different creatures at different times. He said they would come bang on his bedroom window in the middle of the night. They'd come bang on the house in the middle of the night. They'd throw rocks at the house in the middle of the night. At first, it started happening just you know, like once a week, twice a week. And then it started happening every single night. He said these things would come in and peek at the windows at him or his family or his kids. They would growl at his kids. And it just got to the point to where it was on a nightly basis. He said he hardly ever slept. He could barely sleep. So what happened is it start, they started coming up every night to the windows. They started coming and banging on the doors at night. But they weren't actually trying to enter the home. When you read the BFRO report, it makes it sound like they were trying to get into the house, and that's not really what happened. And Mike says he has a shed out in his backyard, and they had five deer carcasses sitting in the shed. You know, they hang the meat to let it cure, and you guys right. are hunters. Exactly. I don't have to explain to you. Mm-hmm. The next morning, one of the mornings they get up, and all five deer carcasses are gone. Something actually broke into the shed and took all five deer carcasses. And I kind of and it's hard for people to understand, but I guess I can understand where he's coming from. He didn't really know he, they weren't quite putting two and two together quite yet. Right. He said, Wes, one morning we got up, he had thirty chickens in his chicken coop. One morning he got up and all thirty chickens were gone. Good lord. And there there was a trail of eggs, something had cracked open the eggs and actually sucked out the inside of the egg and there was mm-hmm. broken eggs leading back into the forest. Good grief. Things got worse when his kids would go outside to play. In their backyard, they had kind of a pasture, and then it was a tree line. And his kids would be out there playing, and he said these creatures would come up to the tree line. Three or four of them would come up to the tree line, start growling at the kids. They would shake trees. They would throw rocks at the kids. And his kids would come in just terrified, just white as ghosts. And all they would say is monsters, monsters, monsters. And so they start realizing... You know, we we need help here. There's, we got some problems here. The creatures, it got to a point, and can you imagine, this would drive you crazy after a while. Can you imagine something oh, that on Yeah. I mean, constant, constant. You'd never be able to relax. Yeah, you'd never be able to relax. And he, he said it caused a lot of hardship in his in his family. His wife was upset. His kids were upset. His wife took the kids and went to stay with family because she had enough. She didn't want to be there anymore. And she basically told Mike and Tim, hey, you guys get rid of these creatures. We're, I mean, uh, we can't stay here any longer. Mike went on to further tell me that one time his, his sister came to their house with her two kids, two small little kids. And to actually get into his driveway, he has a gate out front. And you actually have to get out of the car, open the gate, and then drive the car in. So he's sitting on the couch. He hears this commotion going outside. He hears screaming. Um, and he doesn't know what's going on. So he grabs his rifle, and he runs out there. He's trying to talk to his sister. One of the kids is actually up underneath the dash of the car, shaking, and can't be consoled. The one in the back seat is laying down on the floor, crying, and can't be consoled. His sister couldn't even talk. She was shaking. He said all three of them were white as ghosts. And it wasn't until the one in the back seat just uttered the word monster. 
that he realized what had happened. Finally, his sister was able to calm down. His sister said what happened is she pulled up to the gate, left the door open, got out of the car to open the gate. Three of these creatures came out of the woods, just out of the wood line, started growling at the kids, started throwing softball-sized rocks at the car, throwing rocks at her. And so she was screaming and just ran back to the car. And when Mike had run out there, they, they had basically scattered. The creatures took off. He told me about another time that he, his, one of his nieces came over. And she was, you know, 18, 19. She came over. She had recently broken her foot uh, about a year ago, and it never had quite healed quite yet. And so he's sitting on his couch, and he hears her just screaming bloody murder out front. She comes running into the house, and he sits her down on the couch. And he's thinking, well, she got out of the car, stepped off, you know, and stepped on her foot wrong. And, you know, it sounded like she was in pain. She's sitting there shaking, and she's looking at Mike, and she's white as a ghost. She tells, she tells Mike, monster, mo- there's a monster out there, there's a monster out there. By this time, this has been going on for about a year and a half, two years. Mike said he had enough. He went back to his room, loaded his rifle, went out front, and the creature had taken off to the backyard. So Mike goes after it to the backyard, and he said he heard it run back around to the front. And about that time, he hears his niece just screaming. So he runs around to the front. The thing had run back into the woods, and Mike said that it's the only time he's ever taken a shot at something he couldn't see. He sees a brush moving, and he just popped off a shot. Well, he goes in there and talks to his niece, and his niece said what had happened is she had pulled up. And Mike said that lights don't bother him like people think. He said he had a big spotlight in his front yard. He had a big spotlight in his backyard. His niece had pulled up, got out of the car. She actually started locking the door, looked up, and here's this creature standing there about 20 feet away from her, growling at her. And she said that when she came back in and sat down on the couch, when Mike took off, and Mike was telling me in his, in his front living room, he has this huge bay window. She said that this thing was as tall as the gutter and actually had to lean down into the window and had rolled its lips back and was showing its teeth and was growling at her through the window. Oh, good Lord. She could hear Mike running around the house. Its eyes got real big. She saw the whites of its eyes, and it took off running. And about three seconds, four seconds later, she saw she saw her uncle come around front. And so none of these encounters, you know, this wasn't a good time for this family. These weren't like, you know, they weren't out there playing the flute. They weren't out there sharing gifts with these things. You know, these things were just short of terrorists to this family. Right, yeah, Mike told me none of the incidences were good. No, they weren't. Mike said that him and his brother, his wife had left. She had gone to stay with family, took the kids. And him and his brother are are sitting back-to-back inside the house. One of these creatures came up to the back window saw Mike and Tim, rolled its lips back, and started growling at them. And it, he said, Tim, Jim, Tim just said, you know what, I've had enough. I've had enough of this. And he goes out after the creature. So he follows his brother out there to back him up. This creature runs off the porch, and Tim had fired three shots, actually hit this thing three times. He hit it once in the back, he hit it once in the head, and he hit it once in the lungs. And he said, you know, they kind of flop around like people, like a person getting shot. They got up, tried to run, dropped, got up, tried to run. And he said it wasn't far from the house. You're only, you know, maybe 70 yards from the house. He goes, Wes, I, I heard this creature die. He goes, I, I actually, we sat and listened to this thing die. It was gurgling up blood, and it was gasping for air. And he goes, when we were out there standing on the porch, and we were basically waiting for this thing to die, we were going to drag the body back as soon as, you know, as soon as it was dead. 
And he said, so they're sitting there, and they hear it take its final breath. Right inside the wood line, which wasn't far from the creature, he said you could almost kind of tell from the body language there was two or three of them in the tree lines that were freaking out in total panic, running around. He said they were making all kinds of noises. Him and his brother started walking out towards the body, and that's when basically they were rushed by a bunch of, you know, these Sasquatches, and they backed off of the the body. He said one of them actually picked up the body, threw it over its shoulders, and then the rest of them scattered back into the woods. No, I was going to say, uh, he mentioned that to me too, that they uh, that they would they would defend the dead body while the other ones were taking it away. They weren't going to leave a dead one behind. They take the body off. He said they didn't hear any more that night. It was probably one of the, the few nights in the last year and a half that they actually had any peace. They actually called the BFRO at that point, and they told them what was going on and asked them to come out. And Mike told me the reason why we called the BFRO, the whole objective was, please help us make these things go away. You know, we don't want these creatures around anymore. We need help. We need people out here. So the BFRO tells them, hey, we'll we'll send out investigators. Mike says, no, I, I don't want investigators. I need experts out here, and you need to send a hunter out here as well with the group. So they, they're talking back and forth with the BFRO, and they're trying to make arrangements to have someone come out. Him and his brother went out the next day where they had actually shot the creature. And Mike told me, he said, Wes, you know, he goes, if you took three five-gallon buckets of blood and just threw it everywhere, that's what the scene looked like. He said there was brain matter out there. He said there's blood everywhere. He said it wasn't until after they shot that creature is when they actually tried to get inside the house. They would try to actually get into the home. It wasn't because they wanted food. It wasn't because... He said... He, they were after them. They were after them. He told me that... In his heart, he feels like these things would love a piece of him. And so he bought night vision gear. They had assault rifles out there. They call the BFRO, and the BFRO finally comes out. They bring in these these quote-unquote experts, according to Mike. Yeah. (laughs) He said the hunter that they actually brought out was a 74-year-old man that spent 99% of the time sleeping in his car. Oh, good grief. He's upset with the BFRO about doing that. And the BFRO, when they came out, he said they were wanting to buy the property from Mike and his brother so they could do, you know, a Jane Goodall research out there. Those people uh, have no idea what they're doing. They don't. And, and Mike's saying, you know, they had several arguments with those guys saying, hey, we didn't call you out here for a research project. We called you guys out here for help. So the BFRO, the guys at the BFRO, they're they're talking back and forth with, you know, who's ever at the headquarters. And Mike said that first night that those guys were there, they were so scared, two of them packed up and were going to leave the next day. And he told, he told <laughs> I, me, I'm Wes, surprised. he told me, Wes, I don't think these guys have ever even seen a Sasquatch. I don't think they've no. ever actually encountered one. He they said, don't these have guys any were, experience. No, he said these guys were so scared, they started packing up their stuff after the first night. And he actually convinced them to stay. He asked them to stay. Because they needed help. They needed... Right. I was asking Mike, I said, you know, to. I was asking Mike to describe some of the the creatures. It was really interesting to talk to him, you know, and I'll go into... He said, oh, Wes, I'll tell you how they hunt. I'll tell you how they fish. I'll clear up the eye shine dilemma that's out there in the Bigfoot world. What they do is, as far as what they look like, he said some of them look like apes. Some of them actually look kind of gorilla-ish. Like, you know, like a gorilla out there running around. They they kind of have a gorilla-type look. He said some of them, you know, look 
I guess, between a cross between a human and a gorilla. I think he had mentioned the word kind of retarded or Down syndrome. He was telling me they look pretty messed up in the face. They got big eyes, and he goes, during the, the daytime, you'll see big black eyes. And he goes, at night, their eyes reflect red. And then he said, well, let me back up. The eye shine depends on the type of light you're hitting them with. If you hit them with a flashlight, you're going to get a red color back. If you hit them with a, you know, a, a car's headlights, you're going to get a red color back. He goes, some of the newer cars, how they have the halogen bulbs. Right. He said, when you hit them with that, you're going to get kind of a yellowish, greenish. He goes, so it all depends on what type of light you're hitting them with. It's not like they're magical creatures that have. Yeah, I, I've seen the amber with using a spotlight because they're those, you know, really bright halogen lights. And he, so he was saying, you know, so that clears up the, the eye shine thing. And he goes, they don't glow like people say. They don't, they don't glow on their no, own. There's no it's internal like, lights. <laughs> right. And he said that um, I asked him what he thought Bigfoots were. What, what do you think this is? He flat out told me, he goes, I, I think they're an ape. I think it's some sort of primate. He goes, they're not a gorilla. It's not people. These aren't the forest mm-hmm. people out there running around like people say. That's crap. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he said, you know, these are wild animals out there. He goes, he thinks they're crazy, but he said they're not stupid. And he was telling me that, you know, he has all these lights sitting up in his yard. And he would get up at 2, 3 in the morning, and he'd see him standing out in the yard right in the light, looking at the house, kind of swaying back and forth, looking at his house. Right, and we so saw that in Yakult, too. Yeah, and that's what it made me think of when he was telling me that. Yeah, and there's so a he, lot of elements you've mentioned so far that I can I can pick a story out of people I've invest, interviewed over the years, and I can I can tell you like the deer taken out of the shed. I, I can go all through what he's told you and, and pick out a story to where there's parallels, very clear parallels to their behaviors. Yeah, and he was telling me that the average size of them is around eight feet, nine feet. He said he's, he there was he was telling me about after they had shot that one. He said there's this eight foot one that looked more gorilla than the rest of them. And what it would do is it would come out in the yard at night, and it, and it would pace back and forth, and it would growl, and it would throw rocks. Him and his brother decided, we've had enough, so they go out after the creature. Well, the creature kind of goes back a little bit, back more towards the tree line, so they start engaging it. They start going after it, and it backs up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, but it's allowing them to It's drawing them out. It's drawing them out, and he exactly. told me that... What was going on is when this thing would do that, in the wood line that was almost like a U-shape around them, he would hear four or five creatures in the wood line surrounding them, and he realized it was a trap. A trap, absolutely. And he said that this thing would do it all the time. It would try to get them, it would try to provoke them into coming out, you know, out of the house. He, he was telling me that, you know, they, he was sitting in his, in his bedroom one time, and he said he always keeps his night vision and his either rifle or assault rifle right next to the bed. So he's sitting in his bed in his bed one night, and he said this creature came to his bedroom window and actually had to bend down because it was so tall, looked in the window and started growling at him. So he grabbed his night vision gear, grabbed his gun. Before he could get out of the bedroom, he heard his wife screaming from the living room. He was out there and was like, what's wrong, what's wrong? She goes, I saw, I saw it again, I saw it again. He goes, was it gray? And she goes, yeah, how did you know? He goes, it was at the bedroom window growling at me. She's like, yeah, it came out here out to the, the front window and started growling at me. He actually went up and after this creature, he said every time he steps outside, they'll scatter. 
because they, mm-hmm. I asked him, I said, do you think they know what a gun is? And he said, Wes, they know what a gun is. Sure he said do. one time, yeah. He said one time I was on my, I was, uh, I went out out back, and he goes, we used to have this dumpster out back, and I hear this thing digging through the dumpster. He goes, I didn't know if it was one of these monsters. I didn't know if it was, you know, just a wild animal. So I go walking up to the dumpster, and he said this thing stood up, and he's probably two feet away from it. This thing stood up inside the dumpster and was looking down at him. And Mike said he he grabbed his gun, cocked the hammer back. It looked down and saw his gun, and he goes, Wes, I saw the whites of this thing's eyes. Its eyes got real big, and then it dropped down, back down into the dumpster. He said in the backside of the dumpster, there's a hole to where stuff, you know, it was a pretty big hole. Things could get in and out there. He said, I'm waiting for this thing to pop its head back up because I'm going to take its head off. So I start walking around the dumpster, and he goes, I stepped on a kind of a large twig, and the twig broke. He said, this thing went barreling out of the dumpster, out the back backside of it, took off on all fours. And he said, What's the, this thing was running so fast, I couldn't get a beat on it. He said, it went, took off on all fours, and then he said, it was so smooth that it went up on two feet like it was nothing and took off running like you'd see a man take off running. And so he's trying to get a beat on it. He said, when it jumped, it cleared the six-foot fence, and he goes, it had to have jumped at least 50, 60 feet. And cleared this fence. And he Sounds goes, a little and like it, your story. Well, and that's what's funny is because he used the same type of wording I used. He, he said, you know, Wes, it was like watching something in slow motion, but in fast forward. Yeah. And it was so fast and it was so smooth. And he goes, I just couldn't get a shot off on it. He explained how they hunt. He explained the game cams. He said he didn't understand why. And the only thing he's ever come up with on the game cams is they don't like the infrared. And that could and, very well be. I mean, we don't know that much about their eyes and how they work. Maybe they can actually see that. And that's the only thing he could think of, you know, because I had asked him, you know, do you think they know what a camera is? Do you think? And he said, no, I don't think they know what a camera is. He goes, Wes, I got pictures of them. I got videos of them. I got audios of them. You know, he goes, but why would I come out with any of that? When they first came out with this, he said he joined some of the Bigfoot forums, mm-hmm. and he said people just attacked him left and right. And so they had enough. And he said, so why would I come out and share anything he goes, it's going to take a body to prove it. So what does it matter what I got on video? What does it matter what exactly. pictures He's exactly right. And, you know, it's reprehensible the way those folks have been treated by all these so-called, you know, self-proclaimed experts out there. It just drives me crazy when these people open their mouths talking like they know something and they don't know a damn thing about this subject. Yeah, he was telling me that uh, as far as the game cams go, he said for what he's had them put sticks in front of his game cams he put spotlights in his yard. That didn't matter. They still came up and would bang on his windows at night. He said it got to a point where he just turned on his TV as loud as it would go, and he, he got used to falling asleep to the TV. Right. He said he learned the best way to deal with them is don't don't address what they're doing, and they, they tend ignore to go them. away. And he Which said is what that, I told people for years to do. Just ignore them. Right. One thing you said uh, earlier, Wes, when we were talking, you were telling me about uh, you should tell that part where they were marking out to where the infrared on the cameras would come out with sticks and whatnot. What did, what did he have to say about that? Oh, he was saying before he learned about, he kind of learned a hard lesson about ignoring them. And he said before he got to that point, what he did is he set up motion detectors and lights that would go off around his house. And he said that worked for a small amount of time. It seemed to get them to back off. And he wasn't sure if they were backing off. He thinks that maybe they thought he was clicking the light on, and so they backed off. And he said one day... After this, they backed off for a while, 
then the the knocking on the window started again, the knocking on the door starting again, and he said that uh, he went out one day and noticed none of his his motion detectors were really going off anymore. And as he walked around the property, he had seen these sticks, almost kind of, they were laid on top of each other, but kind of in a weird pattern. And he thought, well, that's odd. And then he walked over a little bit farther and saw another one. And then he saw another one. And then he saw another one. And it dawned on him that where they had laid those sticks was in the direct path of the motion detector. And if you stand behind the sticks, it's too far for the motion detector to go off. The minute you step across those sticks, the motion detector goes off and the light goes off. And you know what that That's sounds not... like is just like what an Indian friend said about them, you know, with the trees. And we talked about them marking, you know, their tree marks. Besides just being territorial markers or, you know, directional markings, they'll do that where there's places where humans will frequent as a warning to others of their kind to stay away from those places. So it's very similar to that, that kind of behavior. Yeah, it was almost like a warning, like if you go across this, you're going to set off the light. They would come in the middle of the night. He said one morning he got up, and all of his motion detectors were pointed straight up in the air. So they had figured out how to, how to they got past, because he, he, what he would do is when he would, went out, he messed up all their sticks. He just would take them and throw them out, and he'd get rid of all the sticks. That, and he said the next morning when he got up, all of his motion detectors were pointed straight up. So they had figured out what was actually setting off the light. And he told me, he said, Wes, they're crazy. They're not stupid. He was telling me about how they hunt, and I, I remember, you know, Will, you, you told me that a long time ago. They're ambush but he said, predators. Ambush predators. He told me, Wes, I'll tell you exactly how they hunt. It reminded me of kind of how chimpanzees hunt. But yeah, he was it's telling, very similar. It is very similar. He was telling me that what they do is, and he's seen it time and time again, they'll, they'll sit on the side of a game trail. They'll never go down a game trail, but right. they'll sit just off of, of a game trail. In kind of a camouflage area, one will sit at the top of the game trail, and another one will sit at the bottom of the game trail. And he said this wood knocking business that the BFRO does is a joke. He goes, the wood knocking is when they're hunting. He said one will wood knock at the top of the game trail, and the other one will respond to the wood knocking at the bottom of the game trail. And it, almost kind of like, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you ready? And he said that when a deer comes down the game trail, one of them will kind of make a commotion in the bush not enough to make the deer bolt, but enough right, to make gently it... gently drive it. Right, drive it down the trail. Drive it into the ambush. Right. And lead it to the right spot. Right. And he was saying when it would get to the bottom of the, the game trail where the other one was at, it would pounce. It would jump out and it would pounce on it. And he said what they do is they break the leg or break, break both legs. And he said, Wes, I can't tell you how many times I would hear a deer cry out, a fawn or a deer or an elk cry out in pain after it broke its legs. He said, and then what they do is they break their neck mm-hmm. and they carry, right. carry them off. This whole business that they run down deer, you know, he said, you'll never outrun one. I can tell you that right now. But he said that they, they're ambush predators. They're not, they don't go out there and chase down deer like people think. No, they can, but they're going to conserve their energy as much as possible because they're a big animal. They require a lot of, uh, you know, nutrients. So they're going to conserve that as much as they can and maximize you know, the food value by uh, resting and, and hiding and waiting. You know, then they have that quick burst of energy, they get their meal, and, and they're in pretty good shape with that. I think they're the masters of that. They hunt smart. They hunt smart, yeah. absolutely. Everything I they do is smart. They don't do anything that's not absolutely necessary for their survival. And I'm sure, you know, with them, all the activity around that house, 
you know, there's a reason behind that, whether it's, you know, territorial or, or whatever their intentions are. And he was telling me that you would find stick structures. He he actually would find stick structures, but he would usually find within the stick structure a deer kill or where something had been eating. And he said that the moment that he would come upon their stick structure, he one time he found one that was pretty elaborate, and he went up to get his camera, came back, and it was gone. The stick structure mm-hmm. was gone. He said, I don't know if they smell that you've been there. He goes, I'll tell you one thing about caves is – Sometimes you'll find him in caves, but you'll never find him in a cave. He goes, there's always right. a back exit. It's never yeah, a cave. they always leave just... themselves a way out. Right. And, That's um, why they sleep up near ridgetops, because they use gravity. It's a fast way. If a, you know, if a threat comes along like a person, they have multiple escape routes, and they can use gravity you know, to aid their speed out of the area. Not to mention in hot areas, it's cooler up in those elevations during the day, too. The other thing he was telling me is is how they fish, and I've heard this a million times from different encounters. He said what they do is they'll sit and almost like the same way they they hunt deer, they'll they'll ambush. Mm-hmm. You ever heard you ever heard the term noodling? Right, right. Oh yeah. He said what they'll do is they'll basically get inside the term noodling for people out there who don't know. A lot of these guys, especially in the south, they they'll sit and wait in water, and they'll put their hands down in crevices where catfish will come up and bite their hand. Well, when they bite their hand, they yank the catfish out. And he was saying they do the same thing. They'll sit out there, and you'll see one uh, with it, usually one hand in the water. And he said he always laughs when, when he hears accounts where people think they're out there washing their hands or that's not what they're doing. They're, they're actually they, – and he said he's seen them eat a whole fish right there uh, after they catch them. In fact, there's spots around his property. There's piles and piles and piles of fish bone you know, uh, what was left of the fish, what they what they didn't eat. But he's seen all, all kinds of colors. I mean, he said he saw one that was uh, about four feet tall several years back, and it was blonde, had a blonde hair color. About a year or two ago, he saw it, and it was uh, almost nine feet tall. And he said he knew you it know, was the same one because it was yeah. blonde. It was the only blonde one. I, I've heard of that, too. Even, even the Patterson Sasquatch was actually, you know, it looks dark on the film. And Bob Gimlin told me that it was actually much lighter in color actually standing there near it. They, they yeah, become he, in a, a, a range of colors. And he was saying the faces are a lot different, too. He said he's he seen some that kind of look like the Patterson film. He's seen some that kind of look more apish, more grillish. He's seen some that kind of look like a cross between an ape and a person that had Down syndrome. He said their faces are pretty messed up when you look at them. I, I think there's going to be a lot of variation among the species. They're not all going to look alike. So I, I think that's very accurate that there there should be differences. Sort of like the, um, you know, something we're going to talk about here in a bit is the uh, the new research on the Neanderthal. And you, you saw those pictures that they did with the reconstructions, the new reconstruction. And it right. reminded me of his description of, you know, kind of a messed up looking face. Yeah, no, that's the first thing I thought of, too, when I saw that. Yeah, it was like it just like a light went off in my head. I'm thinking, wow, that's how many times have I heard that description? Yeah. Well, he was telling me that the BFRO... They had these Austrian snow peas growing out of the area. The BFRO basically said, if you make the deer go away, because I guess deer go after these snow peas, they they go crazy after them, that the Sasquatches will go away. And when you read the account on the BFRO website, it makes it sound like these guys planted all these snow peas so they could poach from their property. He told me, Wes, that's not true. He said those snow peas were there when they bought the property, and they're still there today. Yeah, they're natural. Uh, Yeah. And he was saying that when you read the BFRO report online, 
it makes it sound like these guys were telling them, you know, hey, Johnny boy, go tear up the snow peas, your deer will go away. And then the deer went away, and then the Bigfoots went away. And he said, that's not true. They, they still have stuff going on there today. They still have right, all kinds of stuff. Right, they never went away. They never went away. And he was saying that, you know, he, he has every intention on shooting one. And he, he was uh, him and I talked a little bit about, you know, collecting a specimen. And I can kind of understand his feelings towards towards them, of a, a, a pure, dis, you know, disdain for them after what he's gone oh, yeah. through. Right? I can't right. blame the guy. I, I can't blame him either. But he was telling me that, he said, I'll tell you this right now, Wes. I asked him if he thought that they buried their dead, and he said he didn't know, but they will carry their dead off. I sent him some pictures of things that I suspect are, are burial places, so I'm waiting to hear back on his opinion on that. Yeah, he told me that, you know, when you shoot one, you better chamber another round because you're probably going to have to shoot two or three more. You know, it's one of those things you, you better be damn careful. Even, you know, I've had people recently just in the last day or two about, back again with the Patterson incident, a lot of people don't understand it wasn't just one Sasquatch that day. There were three of them there. The other two weren't seen, and I asked Bob uh, Gimlin why they didn't follow that one after they reloaded the camera, and he says, quite bluntly, he says, we were afraid of where the other two were, and they were much larger than the one they filmed. So they were they were afraid of uh, what those three creatures might have done to them. When you read the BFRO report, and I flat out asked Mike this, at the end it makes it sound like well, the news got out in the small town, and the newspapers started showing up, and then fishing games started showing up on his property. I asked him two questions. I asked him, one, was that true? And two, do you think the BFRO double-crossed you guys and called fishing game and called the newspapers? Um, and his answer was yes to both of them. I had asked him, do you think the government is potentially covering up Sasquatch coming out? And he said, absolutely. He said, well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. When, when After the BFRO people left, he said, yeah, they had fishing game almost sitting on the property daily. So they backed off from doing anything because you can't just go out and start blasting with fishing game sitting around unless you want to go to jail. He said that eventually fishing game left, and he's sitting in his living room, and he's looking out his front bay windows, and he sees an unmarked car pull up, blacked out windows, and this guy gets out over by his, his uh, phone box that was out there for his landline phone at the time. This guy opens up the phone box and starts doing something. So he grabbed his rifle and walked out there and confronted the guy and startled him. Mike flat out told the guy, hey, I know you're not with the phone company. And the guy goes, no, I'm with the power company. And he gave him some BS story. And then he, he said the guy couldn't get out of there fast enough. He packed up his stuff and basically had left. And Mike said that every time they would get on the phone, it would almost sound like someone was picking up on the other end. They were lying was tapped. Line was tapped, and I asked him, I said, why, why do you think the government was covering this up? You know, he along the same lines as, you, as you've always said, Will, it, it comes down to money. Imagine, he told me, Wes, imagine what it would do to the economy if this, it came out that there was a primate living in North America. He said they're tough to find. We don't know how many of them there are. All logging would stop. All the timber, timber industry would stop. Forget parks and recreation. All of that would go oh. down the tubes. Yeah, it's all financially based. Yeah, right. There's no doubt of that. So in the United States, and these, these uh, statistics are actually from uh, 2012. I couldn't find anything updated to 2013 yet, but there is 1.6 billion jobs that people have here in the United States. So think about all those jobs that would be lost if, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Sasquatch, if, if, you know, if there was something that did come out about Sasquatch in the forestry, in, you know, industry. 
not only with that, there is with the forestry industry and the paper products that we produce, it's 8% of the United States economy, which that equals out to $240 billion. And you remember so what I mentioned that. before <laughs> about well, look like where you guys live, the, you know, the Amboy area. That was a thriving, like a lot of communities, you know, through the Cascade Range, were, were thriving logging communities, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And then when the spotted owl thing hit, all that ceased. All those communities, all those jobs died. I tend to think, and I, you know, that the whole spotted owl thing was sort of a, a test project to see what would what the impact would be on these communities that would be affected by some sort of wildlife that needed protection. Something as simple as an owl caused that much devastation in the economies of all those communities up and down the coastal areas. So think what a primate would do. It would be the exact opposite in terms of impact. I mean, the owl had a big impact, but it wasn't anywhere near what an indigenous primate would be you know, on the North American continent. I mean, it's just mind-boggling in Renee DeHinden's terms what the impacts would be. Yeah, it would financially, it would totally financially crush us here. I mean, if you, if, you, if, if you think about it, and I know you guys probably do too, I know of a couple loggers, or you know somebody that is a logger, or somebody that is, that's part of their occupation is in the forestry industry. I mean, I can think of a handful of people that I know that log today. <clears throat> it would be devastating. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely side industries too, you know, restaurants and everything else, you know, that logging supports. That's true. Right. That's true. You know, so you, it's exponentially, you know, the impact would be, it would have a huge ripple effect. Well, the other thing he brought up that I thought was interesting was, you know, he, he, he told me, Wes, if they're going to take their time to come out and they're going to watch my property, they know about these things. And mm-hmm. he said in his area, just a, f- a couple of miles up from his home, Family was walking down a trail, down a, a kind of a park, a game, you know, not a game trail, but, you know, kind of a park, walking down into the woods. And he said this, the older lady, the grandma of the group, was going to go back to the car to get something. And they were about 800, maybe 1,000 feet down the trail. And so she just said, well, just wait here. I'll run back up to the car. I need to get something. And she vanished. She was gone. And he right. said that it runs actually parallel to a road. And he said that, you know, he's not saying that they're they're directly involved with it, but he goes, people have just completely vanished out this way, just gone, and never and to be heard from again. Didn't he say the dogs wouldn't, wouldn't pick up that trail? Yeah, the dogs wouldn't go after the trail uh, yeah. of where she went. Which is very wow. similar to the lady that came up missing in your area not too long ago. Right, and that's what it made me think of. Yeah, there's so that's... many parallels. I, I, can't, I can't even begin. I can't wait to talk to Mike because there are so many things that, that – you know, you've told me through your conversations and that he and I have emailed back and forth. Things, I, everything he's, to, he's said, I have heard or seen elsewhere. So I know everything he's saying is true. I guess the final thing, and I know we got a lot of other things to get to, but one of the final things I'll tell you that he told me is I asked him, uh, you know, in that audio I played in the beginning with the samurai chatter, I said, have you heard that before? And he said, absolutely. He said, most of the sounds they make are screams, whistles, uh, you'll hear the whoop, um, he said. But that samurai chatter, he goes, I've heard that on a number of occasions. He goes, they will but mimic. It, but it wasn't the same as the uh, Sierra sounds, though. No, it wasn't quite the same as the Sierra sounds. But he said right. it was a chatter, a chattering he's heard. Right, and, and I've heard that myself, so I, yeah, that's true. And he even told me that they mimicked him. Yeah, which kind exactly. of exactly threw me off a little. It really threw me off when he said that. I asked him what he meant by that, 
And he said, Wes, one time I, I had left for work, and my brother and my my dad were out there. And he goes, Wes, every night I call for my dogs to have my dogs come in. So my brother and, and my dad are out there, and they hear me calling for the dogs out in the woods. They hear my voice out there calling for the dogs. Tim and, and his father kind of looked at each other like, is Mike here? And then they realized, no, Mike's gone. He left hours ago. His car's not here. Um, and his brother kind of felt like it was a little bit of a trap, too, to get them to come out towards right. the woods. But the thing he said, his brother explained it to him, sounded just like Mike calling for his dogs. That's creepy, remember, man. That's really creepy. Well, now remember, yeah. some of the, the tribal uh, terms for these things, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, was ventriloquist, where they would imitate they could imitate, and we knew, you know, of course, in the Graham area back in, you know, the Puyallup Screamer days, they were imitating coyotes, and and I'd heard those screams. There's recordings of them where it sounds like coyotes, but if you know what known coyotes are, and I've heard recordings played side by side with this the scream, you know, you quickly can tell the difference between the two. You know, if they can imitate animals, then why couldn't they imitate people at some at some level anyway? No, I love talking to them. Like I said. Uh, you know, these aren't, this wasn't a, the dumb hillbillies out there shooting kind of like what you read. No, on. he's a sharp guy. Very he's a smart. real sharp guy. Very smart guy. Yeah, it was it was a pleasure to talk with him. But I hope I, you know, I hope I told this story right. You know, it's it's one that I've always enjoyed. I'm shocked because a lot of people had never heard this story before, and it's probably one of yeah, my Yeah, I got favorite. that too from people. They were totally unaware of it. I have an aggressive Bigfoot encounter to play. This guy was out on a boat ramp. Him and, him and his buddy went out to check out this boat ramp, and it's in the middle of nowhere. As they were pulling away from the boat ramp, his car got stuck. Bob Ganyard is an avid boater, and when a new boat ramp opened up along the Mississippi River, he and a buddy were eager to check it out. So we went down into the bottoms to go down and look at this boat ramp. And it was a big, concrete, huge slab, nice ramp, but out in the middle of nowhere. When Ganyard attempted to leave, his van ended up stuck in the mud. I backed out on the road the best I could see it and started to head away from the ramp, and I got off the tracks. I just happened to slide to the right, and it sucked me right in and left my van sitting at an angle. The van needed a tow, so his friend went to get help while Ganyard stayed with the vehicle. I've got the windows down, the back windows uh, opened up, and uh, had the dash lights on just in case anybody else went in a 4x4 or something come flying down the trail. And then I felt something hit my van. And knocked it. And the van started rocking. And each time it went a little bit farther. And I got to the point where I had my feet on the passenger door. And I'm leaning straight up. Ganyard caught a glimpse of a powerful, beastly creature. I saw a reflection in, in the window just for a second. But it looked like two big brown eyes. And this sucker was, whatever it was, was looking down at me. And I'm yelling and I'm looking up at him. He's looking down at me. We're that far apart. 
and I'm cussing and swearing and yelling and screaming. And after I'm screaming and yelling and everything else, it dropped. And I came, boom, I thought I was going over. The attack ended as quickly as it began. I didn't put the windows down, and I didn't get out. And I sat there about another 15, 20 minutes. The experience is one that still terrifies Ganyard. I was shaking. Uh, it scared the tar out of me. Doesn't that remind you of Rebecca Botello's story? It does. Yeah, it, it does. does. I bet he goes out and buys a four-wheel drive now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he does, too. I bet he does, too. You wonder about the behavior. You wonder why it came up and was trying to, I mean, it obviously knew he was in the car. And, you know, you hear these stories occasionally, and, and I've always wondered what their point is in coming up and, and rocking either a travel trailer or a truck or something and then leaving. Unless it's they're just coming up to check it out. Maybe it's uh, they haven't quite. Because, you know, these things, they, they sort of, in story after story, they, they sort of escalate their boldness or this aggressive behavior. So maybe the first time around, you know, you get a little rocking action going on there. Then if the person were to stay there any length of time, you know, then maybe it's a broken window or something, you know, the next time around. Who knows? Yeah, it's yeah, kind of funny how they just show they show up and they are intimidating and then they, you know, they they rock either a trailer or a vehicle, something like that, and then they leave. You know, and I always refer back to the Hugh Brown story. That one was always one that uh, I loved that story because, you know, him and his pal were up there in the Columbia River Gorge and the friend, you know, they heard the screams of the thing coming up the, the hills toward him and the friend took off to the car and Hugh stands there and the deer runs out next to him and then pretty soon the Sasquatch comes bursting out of the trees and runs right up to him and he stands his ground, you know, in shock and it stops, you know, 10 feet in front of him they stand there and stare at each other a few moments and then it walks away, you know, so maybe they're coming up to the vehicle, you know, rocking it, seeing what it is, maybe as sort of a you know, like I say, a variation of that mock charge uh, behavior. Yeah, it could be. It yeah. could be they're trying to get whatever the individual is, is out of the vehicle, too. That could be. Maybe they're trying to get them to, to jump out of it and run. Right. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. Yeah, it made me think of Mike's encounter, you know, like coming exactly. up, tapping on the windows, banging on the exactly. front door. Looking down at him, you know. I'll tell you what, before we get to the us and them with the Neanderthal, well, I got a Bigfoot or Sasquatch vocalization I want you to listen to, or potential okay. Sasquatch vocalization, and get right. your take on it. Uh, this guy was a hiker out in the woods, and he had filmed himself. He was out just kind of messing around. He had about six hours of video, and out of the six hours of video, within 20 seconds, he caught this vocal. He caught this vocalization. Not on the right path, because I never got that before. I'm lost again. Every time I go trapping through the woods. And the the beeping was I, I cut out the F word. But oh, uh that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. What did you what did you think of that? I wasn't sure I, I couldn't really place that animal. I couldn't either. It, was, it wasn't um I was trying to think in my mind, you know, you always run run across the your you know, list of things that you've heard before. Boy, it's really difficult to tell without hearing more of that. 
I thought it was interesting. But, I thought I'd play it. But, it, you know, it's you're right. It's kind of hard to figure out what is that. You know what I mean? I mean, my first thought might have been some type of bird. I couldn't really uh, place it, you know, with a particular type of bird. Right. The, um, the clip we're about to hear is some new um, research that's being done on Neanderthals, and it, it's kind of striking when it comes to relation to the Sasquatch because there were a lot of primates. At one time, there were as many as 50 different species of primate that covered the entire planet, and most people don't realize that. It's not something that's really put out there a lot. And having studied anthropology years ago in college, I've always tried to kind of keep tabs on new research that's being done in the field. And this one is particularly striking because a lot of the aspects that this researcher has done and says sounds very Sasquatch-like. And, and I wouldn't say that the, the Neanderthal is a Sasquatch because the, the size difference is so great. But there are other species out there of uh, creatures that you know, sort of fit the same size frame as the Neanderthal, but uh, we can discuss that more after, you know, we listen to the clip. Bear in mind, as you, as you listen to this, some of the other things that we've discussed about Sasquatch behavior. This is the currently accepted view of what Neanderthals look like. A bit hairier than us, and with a larger nose and thicker brow ridges. But apart from that, they're unquestionably human. In fact, it's been said that if you gave a Neanderthal a shave, a haircut, and dressed him up in a nice suit, he could easily attend Harvard, although he'd need rich parents. There's a couple of things wrong with this picture. First, it's not based on any sound archaeological evidence. That's because soft tissue features like skin, hair, colour, and eyeballs are not preserved in the fossil record. The other reason is that after studying Neanderthals for 10 years, I'm convinced they look nothing like this at all. There's a reason why all these forensic reconstructions end up looking like humans, and it's got nothing to do with science. I think it's about anthropomorphism. That's our tendency to attribute human characteristics to other animals. It seems to be part of human nature. We assume that because we've got smooth skin, protruding noses, clear eye whites and full lips, then Neanderthals did too. And just because we lost our body hair, we assume they did as well. You can see examples of this anthropomorphic bias in television documentaries and in museum reconstructions around the world. The men are sometimes shown as quite handsome, and often they're even clean-shaven. The children are nearly always quite cute, and some of them amazingly even wear diapers. The females occasionally sport trendy tattoos, and they always have breasts, even though not one of the species of primate has permanently protuberant breasts. So you're just left with the impression that we're seriously projecting our own tastes and values onto Neanderthals. Quite apart from the anthropomorphic problem, there's also a fundamental flaw in the technique used to reconstruct Neanderthal faces from their skulls. Now this forensic process works fine on humans, but that's because we know the shape and position of our noses, ears and lips, we know the thickness and texture of our skin, and we know the shape and size of our eyeballs. These soft tissue features are unique to humans. You would never use them to reconstruct the face of a chimpanzee or gorilla, and yet Scientists always use human facial characteristics and dimensions to reconstruct Neanderthal faces. So it's inevitable that you end up with something that looks like a human. It's serious science. 
documentaries often use actors to portray Neanderthals. This involves hours and hours of meticulous makeup, which the producers assure us is 100% anatomically accurate. But it's not. And one reason is that Neanderthal eyes were in a different position in their skulls compared to humans. They were higher up, about where our foreheads are. Judging by the size of their orbits, or eye sockets, their eyes were also considerably larger as well. So if George Clooney ever had to play a Neanderthal, he'd need to have a serious facelift. And he'd need larger eyes as well. Basically we know from Darwin that it's the environment that largely determines what an animal behaves like and looks like. In the case of the animals and humans, they evolved on completely separate continents. Humans evolved in the temperate, warm, fertile savannas of Africa. Neanderthals evolved in the frozen glacial wastelands of Ice Age Europe. In fact, the two species, when they met again, had been apart for over half a million years. It's inconceivable from a Darwinian perspective that Neanderthals and humans would still resemble each other after half a million years. All this suggests to me that Neanderthals did not look like humans. Which raises an interesting question. What did they look like? Actually, once you get rid of all the anthropomorphic bias and the inherent flaws in the reconstruction technology, answering this question is not particularly difficult. And that's because, ultimately, Neanderthals were members of the order of primates. They were primates, and as such you would expect them to maintain the appearance of primates. The fact that humans no longer look like their primate ancestors is, I believe, due to completely unique ecological and environmental circumstances, which I describe in my book. These circumstances certainly didn't apply to Neanderthals. So in light of that, you would expect them to maintain the appearance of a tall, bipedal primate. Once you acknowledge that Neanderthals were primates, you start to see similarities between them and other primates. For example, when I compared the profile of a Neanderthal with a chimpanzee, they seem to fit amazingly well. Now, saying that Neanderthals look like modern primates is an interesting clue, but it only goes so far. That's because modern primates come in all shapes and sizes. And there's a good reason for that. They've simply adapted to very specific regional, ecological, and environmental circumstances. And we would expect the same with Neanderthals. So to create a more nuanced picture of Neanderthal physiology, we need to understand the specifics of their environment. And we know a great deal about that. It was Ice Age Europe, a frozen glacial wasteland, described as the most inhospitable environment ever occupied by hominids. This was the environment that shaped every aspect of their physiology and behaviour. Take the issue of body hair, for example. Were Neanderthals hairless like us, or did they have body hair like all the other primates? Well, if you look at the animals that lived in Ice Age Europe at the same time as Neanderthals, you see that they all had thick, dense coats of body hair. The mammoth, the woolly rhino, the Eurasian cave lion, the cave bear, all had thick fur coats. And that 
makes sense as an ecological adaptation to the climate. So it makes sense that Neanderthals did too. In Africa where humans evolved, there was a wide range of prey species that could be hunted. There was also an endless variety of edible plants, fruits, berries, nuts, fungi, and even shellfish. By comparison, in Ice Age Europe, where Neanderthals evolved, there were only about five or six edible plants. And those that did grow there were of such low nutritional value, they weren't worth the time and effort to harvest. This, I believe, forced Neanderthals to abandon their ancestral omnivore eat-anything diet that they acquired from Africa and adopt an exclusive carnivorous diet. In other words, they stopped being hunter-gatherers and became exclusive hunters. But this is where it gets interesting. The prey they were forced to hunt included some of the fiercest, largest and certainly most dangerous animals on Earth. These animals raised the bar and forced Neanderthals to become adept hunters. My contention is that this transformed them over half a million years into the apex predator of Europe. that Neanderthals were flesh-eating predators is supported by new molecular analysis of their teeth enamel. This reveals that the Neanderthal diet consisted of 99% meat. In fact, that's all they ate. And there's only one way to get that much fresh meat, and that's by hunting. It also seems that they didn't care where the meat came from. That's because we now know that Neanderthals were cannibals. The first evidence of this actually surfaced in 1906. Since then, literally hundreds of bones have been discovered right across Europe bearing the unmistakable cut marks of cannibalism. My predator theory also explains why Neanderthals were so much stronger than humans. Their muscles were so large, they had to have extra thick bones to take the strain. It's been estimated that Neanderthals were six times stronger than humans. Even a Neanderthal child could toss a human adult around like a rag doll. It also explains their extraordinary intelligence. Neanderthals were unquestionably the smartest animal in Europe at the time. They mastered fire making, they constructed windbreaks, they made tools and weapons, including razor-sharp thrusting spears. And like other social predators, they hunted in packs and used sophisticated ambush tactics to maximize capture rates. But there's one last adaptation that helped transform Neanderthals into such a formidable killing machine, the dark. The vast majority of land-based predators hunt at night because it's easier to catch prey when they're resting or asleep. This theory predicts that Neanderthals acquired larger night vision eyes and pupils to see in the dark. These kinds of eyes reflect light extremely efficiently. It would explain why Neanderthals had such enormous eye sockets. reconstruction pictures are a bit scary, or the idea of camping alone at night out here in the forest is a bit disconcerting, there's a good reason for that. 
and it goes to the heart of my Neanderthal predation theory. That's because about 100,000 years ago, a group of European Neanderthals migrated into the Middle East, into an area currently occupied by Israel, Syria, Jordan and Lebanon. Now living there at the time was a group of ancestral humans. These were timid Stone Age hominids who moved up from Africa. And the evidence suggests that the Neanderthals began hunting them. But not just for food. I believe that Neanderthal males also began hunting human females for sex. and cannibalistic predation went on for in excess of 50,000 years. It's this and only this scenario that explains why the 2010 draft sequence of the Neanderthal genome found categorically that Neanderthals had interbred with humans. For our ancestors, being hunted by the most ferocious killing machine on Earth was so traumatic, so transformative, that even today we still harbour the genetic legacy of that horrific period of predation. Since the beginning of humanity, these fiendish creatures have haunted the human imagination. They are the stuff of nightmares. They are the monsters of vampires and werewolves of myths, movies and folklore. So that that recording is it's actually cooler to watch than it is to listen to. Yeah, I know it's not if you the go, best audio. Yeah, it's not the best audio. If you go to Jevening Research at blogspot.com, J E V N I N G research.blogspot.com or on Facebook if you go to the Bigfoot Hotspot Radio fan page, you can watch the video. The video is actually really cool to watch. I really appreciated the video a lot. Yeah, and you get to see the artwork that they they had done based on the Neanderthal skulls and everything. It's it's quite a lot different than what we've been taught all these years. Yeah, and I've always wondered if, and I know we're getting really short on time, but I always wondered if the Neanderthal was some form of what we would consider today as Bigfoot, especially when he's talking about how they hunted at night, they were an apex predator. Exactly. It fits all the parameters that we know about the Sasquatch. It, it, it's exactly there, except for maybe the stature, the size. But, again, you know, when I mentioned before, you know, there at one point there were 50 different species of primates all over the entire planet, every continent. And what's out there today is three or four or five of these relic hominids. And who knows, you know, the Yeti could be the remnants of the Neanderthal or the Almasty in, in uh, Russia. And living in Ice Age climates, then these creatures all basically inhabit the northern hemispheres, you know, where it's cooler because they like the cold. They, they're still, they were adapted for Ice Age conditions. The behaviors are all the same. The hunting, the activity at night, the ambush predator, where we heard that before. All 
of these things fit. And the conflict with humans. Indians, many, I've talked to many Indians that say their histories say that when their people came to these places where they now have their reservations, where they now live, when they came to the continent, that these creatures were already here. They pushed them out of the feeding areas to the high remote places where they live now. And if there was, and if we drove them to near extinction, then they've got a darn good reason to stay away from man. And, you know, we go back to Mike's encounters. You know, we see, you know, firsthand details of these kinds of behaviors. They know that humans are dangerous. They'll come up and do things, but they're also extremely wary of man because we became dangerous. You know, if there was that kind of a conflict, like this gentleman was saying, preying on humans, you can, you can examine this today. What do we do, for instance, you know, a human reaction universally is when we're threatened, what do we do? We go out and destroy the threat. If a dog bites somebody and the police are called, you know, every single time that dog is put down, we wipe out threats. You, even on a, on a global scale, you know, if another country threatens us, you know, we send missiles in. These things know we're dangerous. That's why it's so, they're so hard to catch up with. And then when we do, we often have these violent encounters. You know, after listening after listening to that, I had two questions in my mind. One of them was, is there a link between Neanderthals and Sasquatch? And the second question I kind of had, what was first? Was it the Neanderthals or was it Sasquatch? But I guess... They don't really come one after the other. It's like people used to think that we developed out of Neanderthals. Well, the Neanderthals are different species. They're, they're, a, they're a hominid, but they're not human beings. They are a different species than we are. Kind of the same thing if you get zebras and horses. Similarities, but they're different species. And with all these different creatures that did exist, nobody knows for sure because in forest regions and jungles, uh, it, you know, for fossilization has to have a very particular type of conditions for bones to fossilize, and most of the world is not very conducive for that, especially forests and jungle areas. If, if chimpanzees would have gone extinct 500 years ago, all we'd have is myths about them because there, there, are, there are no fossils for chimpanzees. You know, in a jungle environment, they wouldn't exist. All we would have are stories from people that might have encountered them. You know, sort of like the, um, and, and we have myths today, you know, about these creatures in Europe. They called it the woodwose. Everything was adorned with these carvings and such of these giant hairy wild men. You know, where did those stories come from? I mean, maybe these were handed down from a time when this conflict was going on between Neanderthals and our our ancestors. So there could be many different species. And these things may have evolved, you know, these various relic hominids at the same time. You know, so we that's why we still have several of them scattered about the world. And one thing you can't tell from the recording unless you actually watch the video was there was some ancient drawings that they were showing on there. Of, it looked like man hunting. could either be a Sasquatch or a Neanderthal. I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure right. it's a Neanderthal because that's what it was about. But, you know, so that makes sense of what you were saying about how we uh, eradicate the threat. We make it no more. And, yeah, uh, humans, that's so how we I thought that was interesting. That's how we've come to dominate the planet. Anything that's a threat to us, we go out and get rid of it. In fact, as a right of manhood up until very recent times, you know, what did, what did our, our our ancestors do? They'd go out and find the meanest, toughest animal. You know, usually you see movies about, you know, the, the teenager, you know, going out and, and finding some ferocious bear or whatever and killing it by himself. That was his, that's how he became a man. You know, so where, do those, where does that kind of thinking come from? If you, if you go way back to what he's saying, back to those times 70,000 years or whatever ago, 
there was this kind of friction and humans evolved into becoming this very aggressive creature that we are. We are aggressive. We do kill everything that we come across. This is this might be the basis of it. And, you know, that still is in us today. And I know we'll get to, I promise the listeners next week, we'll discuss Sasquatch and, and possible burial sites. But watching that video made me think of, I know back in 2000, there was bones found in Klamath, Oregon. And the human remains stretched out. There, it would have been the tallest man in the world laid out. The individual stood 9 foot 6 inches. The femur bone measured 4 foot 1 inch. And that's the first thing I was thinking of as I was watching this video. You know, a lot of times people say we don't have um, bones, we don't have... Uh, but that's not true. Uh, the, There's there been plenty is... of times bones have been found all the way back almost 200 years ago that these, these stories have been recorded where things were found. And only in, only in recent time, you know, with the interest in Bigfoot, has anybody even cared about these things. And it seems like a lot of that stuff has kind of disappeared. You don't hear about people finding bones like that anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Like now, Neanderthals did. They do know that they did occasionally bury their dead. It's very possible the Sasquatch does the same thing. And, and I have a number of sites we've talked about that. Hopefully we'll be able to go and verify this year whether they are burial sites or not. And it's not every time they do it because I'm sure if a Sasquatch, because they, they're spread out so often, you know, if there's a group, oftentimes, you know, they'll spread out in an area to maximize feeding. Uh, they don't always, you know, work as a, you know, as a... Um, pack type hunt if one were to die several miles away from the rest of the group you know they wouldn't know that it had died or even where it was so and occasionally those bodies have been found out like that maybe you know an individual by itself out but the rest of the time even mike said you know they will not only take that body but they will very uh, viciously guard it away from threats people trying to get to it before they can take it away so there's a lot of parallels, and I think these other relic hominids probably have very similar behaviors because primates are primates. There's a lot of similarities between all primate species, including us. One thing I wanted to play for you, Will, I know we're just about out of time. Last week when we were talking with Robert, the hunter, right. you had mentioned the, some of the vocalization that you heard was kind of that hoo, 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 you know, like a monkey. Yeah, almost uh, chimp-like. Almost chimp-like, and the survivor man... He's a guy that is on the, oh, yeah. on the Discovery Les Channel. Lestrade, yeah. yeah. He had an encounter with something, and I want to play his encounter real quick for you and just get your feedback on it, then we'll wrap things up. And craziest questions that I get asked is, what's the weirdest thing that I experience when I'm out there? And, you know, do I have any experience with strange sounds or, you know, quote-unquote, Bigfoot? I have no idea what the answer is. But what I do know is what I experienced in Alaska. It was about day three or day four, maybe day five, and I was making a grass mat for my shelter. I want something to sleep on. And, I, you know, I was, I was gathering the grass and, and, and filming it and stuff. And then I, if I remember correctly, I put the camera off to the side because as it always happens when I'm, when I'm out surviving and, and I'm filming for Survivor Man, there's a moment where I've captured the story of making the fire or building the shelter, and it's like, okay, now I have to just stop the filming and actually do it for a while. I have to actually build the shelter for a while without running the camera because I've got to get it done. You know? And uh, this was one of those moments. put the camera away and, or down and just thought, well, I've got to start gathering some grass. I need a better bed. I started to gather the grass, and um, 
And I heard something in the tree about 50 yards away, maybe less. And I, and I stopped and I froze. And then all of a sudden I, I heard it. And I heard this sound. I'll just do it. It goes like this. <laughs> now, I've heard moose. I've heard bear. I've heard wolves. I can make the wolves howl. But I've never heard a sound like that before. I mean, it sounded exactly like a great ape. It didn't, it didn't sound like anything North American, any animal that I've ever experienced. And I've experienced a lot of animals. And the thing was, it didn't just do it once. It did that five more times louder than I just did it. And I keep looking over at my camera thinking if I could get over to my camera, and I'm frozen solid, thinking if I could get over to my camera and flip it on and even just get the audio would be something. But I waited this out, and the second I went over to try to reach for the camera to turn it on, bam, crash, smash, bam, crash. And this thing just, whatever it was, took off through the trees and was gone. Now, I'm in the middle of Alaska, and I was freaked out for the rest of my time there. I have no idea what it was, but it wasn't a moose, and it wasn't a bear. So I really don't know. And that's, my, that's, my, my, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, Sasquatch Chronicles, just solved the uh, mystery. Bigfoot's a uh, primate, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I don't think there's much question about that. Uh, you know, what what defines a primate is basically morphological characteristics, and and they fit, of course, well within all the primate parameters. So the noise he made was very similar to what we heard up at Mount Rainier about 10 years ago. And there were two of them up there above our camp that night, and one of them was moving back and forth. One was stationary. The one that was moving back and forth was making that chattering noise, and the other one was making the chimp-like noise. It was the damnedest thing I ever heard. Yeah, it's a damn dirty ape. You're welcome, everyone. A damn dirty ape, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) When he was telling that story, too, I mean, for anybody that's watched watched Les Stroud, he is – I'm a fan. I like the guy. He goes out and does things that a lot of people – I can't even imagine doing. I wouldn't survive. I'd be dead. You know, he was telling that story about, you know, what did he say? It was like 50 yards away or something like that. Yeah, and and then right. he, heard the, he heard the noises. One thing that kind of stuck out in my mind, and actually I didn't really get it until I listened to it the second or third time, but he was like, I was completely frozen. Yeah. And, that's, and, and to me that really made the story almost kind of surreal or true because anybody you talk to or anybody that uh, has actually had somewhat of an encounter, that's, your first reaction is that's what happened to me i was froze and it's sort of like remember what the guy was talking about the neanderthals if that conflict were there it sort of explains our obsession with like monster movies with that that genetic memory of having that that you know horrific type encounter for all what do you say up to seventy thousand years with these creatures you know so when we hear something like that today the genetic memory is still there, and we just freeze with fear. You know, we know what that is instinctually. So you think it's more of a fear thing is why we... we I think so. I think, it's, I think it's that, you know, instinct that's been tucked away for a long time because we, we knew what these things were very well. I've said this many times that when we finally prove that these things do exist, it's not a discovery, it's a reaffirmation of discovery because our ancestors knew all too well what all these creatures were. That makes sense. And, it's almost like yeah. a, it's almost like it's a protective measure for us, almost. Kind yeah, of. exactly. And you know, a lot of animals have that instinct. They're afraid as hell of us for a good reason. The same thing. You know, we're even more dangerous. We're a pack hunter. 
and were were far more intelligent than these um you know relic hominids that are still you know the vestiges that are still left around the world in remote areas animals other animals stay away from us these things stay away from us and it's for that reason that we became the most dangerous creature on the planet have you guys ever like when this is going to sound silly but when you guys were like kids maybe or maybe even today i don't know you have nightmares and whatnot and you're having these vivid dreams and you wake up and you can't really say anything because you're so scared that normally is going back to the less crowd thing you know he froze up that's a protective measure but right well you were saying that we are there. one of the most dangerous creatures are on the on the planet and so not only will fear help protect us but then if you pin us in a corner as a human we can almost we can all we can be like the most aggressive thing there is too absolutely so and it and it may know, very and you know what the guy with the uh, neanderthal theory it, it makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways when you look at it that way because you know we developed those kinds of behaviors the flight or fight mechanism and we've we've sort of perfected that and we became very aggressive probably because we needed that for absolute survival against these things, and not just the Neanderthal, but probably the other species of relic hominids as well that are very likely out there. Yeah, that makes sense. We know one of them is out there for sure. We've all three seen one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's not likely out there. We know at least one species is out there. Yeah, that's true. Wes, did we have uh, something put together? We were talking a little bit earlier about the uh, million-dollar bounty thing. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to play the Bigfoot Bounty. It's kind of a funny audio clip, and I know you guys haven't seen the Bigfoot Bounty. It's an hour of your life you'll never get back. It's terrible. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. I, I was going to give it a second chance Friday night, and I got halfway through it, and I just had to turn it off. I mean, it's just absolutely terrible. But I'll, I'll play my little my, my funny uh, Bigfoot Bounty clip, and then we'll close it out, guys. Dr. Todd, Distel, and Ginger, uh, Natalia. Wait for it. Wait for it. That's the sound of a squatch. You brought me a hippo. We sent you out to bring back Bigfoot, and you brought me a hippo. Did I ask you for a hippo? No. For a hundred years, people have failed to capture Bigfoot. We're dropping you guys off and giving you four hours to bring him back. Go, 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 go. We can't go there. I want to go here. We can't go there. I want to, I want to, I want to go there. Were you tracking a Chia pet? You brought me moss. Rejected. Denied. That's not evident. You are wasting my time. We found a Bigfoot cave. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we found. A Bigfoot cave. Every there, see? Denied. We found a beer bottle. No, we found implements used by Bigfoot, see? Yeah. Rejected. Yeah, uh, Bigfoot was using the beer bottle. That's not a rope chewing on that pine cone. No, uh, no, it's Bigfoot. Yeah, just sign that check up to us right now. Denied. Put a couple of these characters in the cage and let them fight it out. That would be entertaining. Here's an idea. Why don't we let them dart each other? The next time we send you out with four hours, you had better bring back Bigfoot. I mean, we're dropping you off in a hot spot. 
spot. It's a hot spot. N none of you guys brought back Bigfoot, you worthless pieces of crap. Telling us it is DL, drinking beer, eating vine cones, but a nitwits. You know, we're going to have to re re rethink the concept of this thing. It's actually funnier if you've seen the show. They send That's these guys funny. out. They send these monkeys out. No pun intended. The first people that got voted off were like the only sane ones of the group. They, so they send them out. They had to come back with some sort of evidence. One of the guys brought back moss. One of them brought back uh, deer scat. One of them, I think Justin Smyge, or Sumiha, however you say his name, him and his bosoms brought back pictures of like a cave. Uh, Get off and, the and like, <laughs> Let it go, man. Let it go. <laughs> but the the only sane person in the, there was a, a guy and a, a girl. I don't know who they were. They're like, there. We didn't have any evidence. You wanted us just to bring back something, even though it's nothing. And they got voted off. And they kept like the people that brought back moss. And it, it's more about these guys going around fighting. It, anyway, it's a lot funnier if you've seen the show. But it's well, not know, really I, worth, I worth seeing the show. I mentioned that. Yeah, I, I mentioned before that you know when the last year the casting from uh, Spike TV called me and they said I was the their their first number one overwhelming choice to be on the show. So you know, so I, I kind of filled them out on on what the show was going to be like before I consented or denied it. You know, I realized quickly that it was going to be a stupid reality show. I thought you're going to have nine teams of two people running around. And at first, I thought, okay, I'm going to get to pick where I go. I'm going to get to pick my team. Okay, this might work. No, they they chose the area where they're in, and it was in, it's in Southern California, of all freaking places. They have these people competing against each other, and I thought, okay, they're going to have a team of judges. I thought, who the hell are these judges, and how is it that they can determine what is and isn't Sasquatch evidence? Hell, somebody like me should have been a judge. You know, that's done this for forty years and knows what evidence looks like. You know, I declined. I wasn't going to have any part of that silliness. But I did tell him, if you want to do something serious down the road, you know, get in touch with me and we'll talk. But I thought it was a really stupid concept, and I haven't changed that opinion. Yeah, it's worse than that. It's worse than what you thought it was. I was thinking no, the government just makes fun of the issue. I was thinking when we pick up terrorists, the government ought to stop waterboarding people and just force them to watch the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's inhuman torture. We have treaties, you know, with the uh, the international treaties against things like that. <laughs> you know, the thing is, too, is I hope I hope that uh, on a kind of a serious note, I hope nobody gets hurt. You know, they're out there looking for Sasquatch. What if they do run into something? It, from the sounds of the show, I haven't seen that, but it doesn't sound like they're prepared to take on uh, any squatches in the wood in the woods. I, I don't you think know. they're going to run into anything with that much. I don't think they're going to see camera crews and running around and stuff. I don't think they're going to see anything. Yeah, Unless the Sasquatch is sitting up there laughing at them, I don't know. But I've been hoping someone actually gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of cold, man. That's cold. <laughs> they can't help but being stupid, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's worse than that. It's it's. <laughs> It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Well, I, I predicted that show will die a quick death, so at least it could be mercifully quick. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if they're going to get uh, actually giving anyone any sort of money or even get to the end of the show. 
It's absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah, I, I, it's not a good concept. I actually had a lot more for you guys, but I know we're getting, I mean, we're out of time. But uh, well, we'll have another good. show, so. Yeah, it was good talking with you guys. Great material. Great show, guys. Yeah, you guys have a good night. Everyone out there listening, have a good night. Yep, thanks for and joining then- us. Come